We're going to be in Mark chapter 6 today, 1 through 13. If you were with us last week, you know that we just left a triumphant scene. Jesus had healed the woman who had suffered for 12 years. Then he brought Jairus' 12-year-old daughter back from the dead. Triumphant, magnificent, glorious. Two very different types of people came to Jesus in faith, touched him in faith. Jairus said, if I come to Jesus, my daughter, she will be made well. If I touch the hem of his garment, the woman said, I will be made well. And in both cases, those who reached out to Jesus in faith got exactly what they were looking for. Jesus acknowledged their faith tenderly, graciously, granted their requests. Now, as Mark has, uh, tends to do, he takes one, one sequence, one scene, and then in dramatic fashion, he's going to give us the complete opposite response. So we had radical belief, radical faith that was being highlighted, and today we're going to have radical unbelief and a complete lack of faith from Jesus' own people. Well, how will Jesus respond? How will Jesus respond to unbelief? And what is this going to teach us about our own areas of unbelief? What is it about these people's unbelief that causes the God of the universe to marvel? We're going to read together and find out. Mark 6, 1 through 13. Read along with me, if you will. He went away from there and came to his hometown. His disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Uh, Thomas Wolfe The author, the writer, has a novel called You Can't Go Home Again. And if you know the story, it's a story of a man named George Weber. He's a a fledgling author in the book, and he writes a book about his hometown called Libya Hill. Now, the book turns out to be a national success. It goes far and wide, but the residents of the town are not happy about Weber and what he wrote because they feel like he has a distorted depiction of them in the story. Now, in the story, they actually go so far as to send the author menacing letters and even death threats. They're not happy when George Weber comes home. Jesus has come home. And much like Weber, the people who grew up with him are none too happy about it either. This is actually Jesus' second trip back home. The first one is recorded back in Luke 4. Now, if you remember that story, Jesus has just been 
tempted in the wilderness and he comes back and he goes to the synagogue, he goes to the temple and they hand him the scroll and he reads from the scroll. And here it is, Isaiah 61. I've come to preach good news and to release the captives. And and he reads this passage from Isaiah 61 and he rolls it back up and he has this mic drop moment. He says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You know, you just what you just heard. Here it is. And it says in verse 22 through 24 of Luke 4, it says, All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't, isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, Jesus continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. You see, they think they have Jesus all figured out. They think they've got them all figured out. They put Jesus in a box. They say, no thanks. No thanks. I'll never believe in that guy. He's a carpenter. He's a delusional carpenter. Now, if you think the first visit was was hunky-dory and fine, if you know the rest of that story, they tried to kill Jesus. They got so upset with him, they took him to the cliff, and they were going to throw him off. That's how the first visit home went. Now, I've had some bad trips back home, you know, when I lived away, but never that bad. My parents have never taken me to the cliff and... Try to throw me off. So Jesus, to return after attempted murder, that's grace and mercy. That's grace and mercy. You see, he'd been all over the place by now. He's been working miracles. He's been teaching. His fame is spreading far and wide. And yet his own people refuse to believe in him. I remember that guy. I helped Mary change his diapers. Yeah, isn't he the carpenter? Didn't, didn't he make this table? Didn't he fix my oxen's yoke? That guy's, no, I'm not going to believe in that guy. Who does he think he is? And despite being astonished by him, they're they're even astonished by him. They actually hear what he says. They're seeing what he's doing and they like it. Verse two, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? You see, they acknowledge that something miraculous is going on, but they can't. Get past their pride. We're told even that they took offense at him. They're offended by Jesus. If Jesus is so great, you know, Jesus, if you're so great, why don't you do here in your hometown what you did everywhere else? You know, we heard about you raising people from the dead. You know, that would be great. Why don't you help us out a little bit, Jesus? Show us you're more than just a carpenter. You may know this already, but there's also, uh, at this time, vicious rumors that were circulated about Jesus. We see this more so in the book of John, but it's hinted here. The first visit, Jesus comes and they say, isn't that Joseph's boy? And the second time they say, isn't that Mary's son? You see, in this day and age, uh, even if your father was dead during that time, you were always known as blank bar whatever. You know, Jesus bar Joseph. Jesus son of Joseph. But here... There's the nasty rumor going around that Jesus is actually an illegitimate birth. And if you read John, you can see that play out more so. Think of what that meant for him growing up. Think about what that meant for Mary growing up. Think about the the rumors and the gossip that was always behind their back, that always surrounded their family. So you have to read this with a bit of scorn. Isn't that Mary's boy? Oh, isn't that Mary's boy? Oh, we know all about him. I know his brothers and sisters well, you know, I've heard rumors about his birth. He never really did look, after, look like his father, did he? No. 
I wonder why that was. You see, these people's hearts are hard. And Jesus' own people are wicked and unbelieving. And what's implied and even accused back in Mark 3, if you remember that, is that Jesus has gotten this knowledge, gotten his wisdom, gotten his miracles, not from God, but from Satan. This is Mark 3, 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. That is absolute blasphemy. Absolute wickedness. So Jesus leaves. He leaves his hometown and instead goes to the surrounding villages. He's going to teach there. And it's important to note that we're never told in all of Scripture he ever comes back. That's it. And just what he told the disciples to do, if you're rejecting your hometown, shake the dust. Shake the dust so he doesn't return home. Now that's the first part of the passage. We're going to circle back in just a minute. The next part is pretty straightforward. He sends the disciples out two by two. I believe if you go in Matthew, you can actually see the pairing of this, who goes with who. And he sends them out with instructions in verse 8. He says this, He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Now that's not a missionary model that we should all go, okay, now here's what Jesus did. Let's send people two by two, no bags, no staff, two tunics. That's not what Jesus is saying here. It's apostolic urgency that's being implied. Jesus is saying, from now on, everyone has to do it this way. What he's saying is, the message of the kingdom is quick. The message of the kingdom is urgent. It's pressing. It needs to get out. You see, this is the driving priority of the church. Every ministry must be clear in its priorities. We have to get the word out. So Jesus says, only stay in one house. Only one house per town. This isn't a social visit. Don't be hopping from place to place. You are an ambulance. You are an ambulance. You are paramedics. You're coming in to help the sick. And if you're not received, take off your shoes, shake the dust, shake it off. That's condemnation on that town. You're going to go where the spirit leads you, where you're welcomed. You're going to preach, teach, and you're going to work miracles in Jesus's name. Now, one of the small things I love about this is the way Mark just nonchalantly describes what they did. Listen to this in verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick. And healed them. You know, no big deal. It's just, just a normal day in the life of an apostle. You know, absolutely wonderful. Like, I want to read a whole book about that stuff. Like, I would love to hear what those apostles did. But the reason I love this is because God knows my heart. He knows our hearts. And he knows we would take those awesome deeds and we would write books about them. We'd make programs about them. We, we would take all their stuff. You know, there would be... Come learn, learn evangelism from the Sons of Thunder, 2499 DVD. You know, like, think about it. The Catholics would have entire schools of thought, you know, which, who did it best? Peter did it best. Well, yeah, but Philip said this in that one town and, you know, come try the Matthew diet. How much money would the Matthew diet make, right? So Mark keeps it vague. He keeps it simple. It's about God. It's about God getting the glory. It's not about the apostles. We're too quick to make heroes and celebrities out of people doing the Lord's work. All right, now we're going to circle back to Mark 6.6. 6. I, was, I was reading this, and I kept tripping over this part. I, just, I couldn't get over this part 
And I thought, this is what we need to talk about today. This is what the Lord wants us to focus on today. Listen to this, Mark 6, 6. And Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. Now, I want you just to meditate on that for a second. The word, the divine logos, the second person of the Trinity, is said to marvel at something. Now, what was it? Sadly, sadly, it's, it's unbelief. He marvels at unbelief. Now, let's spend the rest of our time looking at, at aspects of unbelief. What is it about unbelief that makes Jesus marvel in all the wrong ways? Okay, here's the first aspect. The first aspect is that unbelief is sin. Unbelief is sin. Let's have a refresher. What is the unforgivable sin? Okay, we talked about this back in Mark 3, 29. And Jesus said, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, I take this to mean that the unforgivable sin is ultimately hardened, callous, final, at the end of the day, unbelief. We could all sit here if I said, okay, we're going to spend the next few hours and we're going to make a list of sins. Uh, You know, come up with the worst sin you could imagine. And we make a list of them. I would look you all in the eyes and I'd say, Jesus' blood can cover every single one of those sins. You can be forgiven of every one of those sins. But the one sin that you cannot be forgiven of is unforgivable. It's that the soul that ultimately dies apart from God. The soul that with its last breath curses God says, I will never believe. It's the soul that looks at God's work, looks at the Holy Spirit moving, sits in pews week after week and says, that's the work of of the devil. That's the work of Satan. I'll never believe it. I will never believe in that God of yours. The Bible says this, this is the condemnation Light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than the light. We also read, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. And Romans 14, 23 makes it crystal clear. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so unbelief is sin. All of our unbelief is sin. And if we think back to Eden, we see that the first sin really is one of unbelief. Satan is there, he creeps in the, the thing, the tempt, you know, the garden, and the tempter's there, and he says, Did God really say? Is that what God really said, Eve? Is that really true? Can you really trust God? And if you dig deep enough in your own life, if you think about this, because I did think about this, every single crime I've committed, every single sin I've ever committed ultimately comes back to unbelief, some form of unbelief. I didn't really believe that God would punish me for that. I really didn't believe in God's love at that moment. And I I love something else instead of God at that moment. It was unbelief. It was doubt. It was some sort of wicked uncertainty that cropped up in my heart. Now, I want to distinguish really quickly between uncertainty and sinful belief, because you might say, well, but I do have doubts, and sometimes I am uncertain. So let's look at this really quick. Job and his wife. You have Job and his wife. They're both going through the same exact circumstances. And, and Job's wife says, curse God, go die. <laughs> you know, thanks, honey. Wonderful. Thank you for that uh, advice, sweetheart. That's wonderful. And Job says, shall we only receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. So Job, the rest of the book, 
will spend in uncertainty asking God for answers. He never once doubts his faith. He believes in God, but he says, Lord, I have some questions, and I'd like some answers. And if you know the end of the book, oh, he gets his answers. (laughs) He gets his answers. Another quick example is that of Zechariah and Mary. Zechariah is there. The angel says, you're going to have a baby. Zechariah says, ha, I'm old. I can't have it. What are you talking about? My wife and I, we can't have a baby. It'll never happen. And the angel says, okay, you be quiet for a while now. (laughs) You're going to be mute. And when the baby shows up, then, then we'll talk again. Then we'll see how things go. And then Mary comes along and Mary asks almost identically the same question. How can this thing be? But it's not in unbelief. It's, it's, I believe you can do this. How? How is it going to be? This is amazing. What's going to happen? Tell me. And the angel gives her the answer. If you're a fan of uh, U2, like I'm a fan of U2, Bono. Bono has the song, uh, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. You broke the bonds, he says. You loosed the chains, carried the cross of my shame. He says, you know I believe it. But... But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Bono in an interview said this song is more uh, an anthem of his doubt than of his faith. He's saying, I acknowledge my salvation. I know I'm a believer, but I still, there are those times where I feel like I haven't found what I'm looking for. And this sinful unbelief, this futile search for something more, something, is there anything better than Jesus? We're always looking for the grass that's greener on the other side. It's such a relatable thing for us. We're so quick to doubt. We're slow to trust and to simply believe. And so this doubting, this uh, sinful unbelief, this is part of our sin nature. But we haven't, we can't stay here. We can't stay in that. Which leads to our second point. Our second point is the marvelous unbelief of the saints. You see, Jesus certainly marvels at the unbelief of his bride. He marvels that despite the collection of God's graces, the collection of mercies that all of us have, we still so often doubt his love for us, don't we? At times, we doubt the wisdom of his providence. We'll say, will God really work all things together for the good of those who love him? Is that verse really true? What about God's unchanging nature? Sure, yeah, he loved me. You know, when I first came to faith, I felt his love. You know, what if he cast me away now, though? Something's changed. You know, God feels distant. Have you ever heard somebody say that? Have you ever heard yourself say that? I hear often from Christians, they doubt their salvation. They have very little assurance of their salvation. And yet the Bible is filled to bursting with assurances of God's pardon for your life, with God's pardon for you. He loves you. He tells you over and over and over. There are songs and poems about his steadfast love for you, Christian. And what this really gets at, it's the core, it's the doubt of God's, of God's atoning sacrifice through his son, Jesus Christ. Is Christ's blood really efficacious? Could it really cover my sins? What if I get really dirty? What about our eternal home? Is heaven even real? How can I be sure? What if I backslide? Am I really saved? We doubt God's power. Is God's arm too short? Certainly he can't calm the storm in my life. The flesh is weak. Unbelief creeps in. Will God make a table for us in the wilderness? Will God bring forth water from this rock. What about prayer? 
God, do you really hear me when I pray? Because I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed and nothing is working. And all of this leads to a doubt about the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. You know, Jesus, why won't the gospel work? If it's such good news, then why, why won't people stay in the pews? Why are they leaving? Why, why are churches everywhere losing? To, if the gospel is so good, why isn't my brother saved? What about my son? What about my next door neighbor? If something's wrong. You must not care. You must be not telling the truth. You see, we see this playing out all across the world in churches. Jesus and the gospel have become punchlines at the end of, of circus performances. You have an hour of entertainment, smoke and mirrors, masterful production, and then the altar call at the end, they call it a day. Why is that? Because the drama of the gospel, the story of Christianity, the story of redemption is not good enough for them. And so there has to be new gimmicks. Constantly new gimmicks. They have to keep itching ears. Does the Lord marvel at the church's unbelief? I think he does. When we doubt God, we are a marvel even to the devils. We are a marvel to the damned in hell. They suffer in agony. We are neglecting and goofing about with the things of God. We are a marvel to the angels who stand in the very presence of God. We sing, holy, holy, holy is his name. And then the angels look down upon us and we have our little anxieties and our little cares and our little worries. And Sunday after Sunday, we stand at the foot of the cross and yet we go out in the week and we fail to fully trust in the one who bled upon it for us. And if you're sitting in this pew and you've been playing the part of a Christian, I'm going to tell you today, one day you will marvel even at yourself. And you will say, why did I waste my life? I was in that pew, I sat there forever, and here I am at the end of my days. Why did I waste so much time in unbelief? Why did I ever doubt the Lord's love for me? If there can be one sin somehow more heinous than the unbelief of a sinner, it's the unbelief of a saint. You see, for a saint to doubt God's word, for a saint to distrust God after innumerable instances of his love, after 10,000 proofs of his mercy, it begs belief. So let us start here with repentance. It has to start here in the house of God. We have to humble ourselves and pray and come to Jesus and say, Lord, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. Jesus will look at you like Jairus. Remember what he said to Jairus? Be not afraid. Believe. Poor Peter. Remember Peter? He walked on the water. He starts to look at his feet. <sighs> That's how we are. We have to gaze upon Christ. It has to be Jesus ever before us. The final aspect today is our marvelous, is the marvelous unbelief of the world. You see, Jesus came to his own and his own people rejected him. They took offense at him. They stumbled over him as the stumbling block. They couldn't and wouldn't accept him as their savior. They attributed his power to demons. They grieved the Holy Spirit. They mocked him. They tried to kill him. Wanted nothing to do with him. His own people. His own community. Jesus said earlier, he said, the measure that we use will be the measure used for us. And so due to their unbelief, the scripture tells us he was unable to do any grand miracles for them. And what that means is that it was not physically impossible. Jesus could have... But it would have been morally and spiritually inconsistent for him to do so. 
You see, where the kingdom of God is rejected, what are you supposed to do? Shake the dust off your sandals. The new life of joy is given to those who receive it by faith. Is it any wonder then that in America today, is God blessing America? Is it any wonder that scandal after scandal is coming to light from Christian denominations everywhere? Is it any wonder that an unbelieving, God-hating generation is being given over to their sinful desires? Should we marvel at that? Well, I do marvel. I do marvel because the unbelief I see from so many of my friends, from people I knew who, who were, said they were Christians once and have left the faith, it, it makes them miserable. <laughs> They're miserable and they're in grief all the time. They go from one fad to the next. Entire months and years of unhappiness. They move from the next thing, crystals to horoscopes to to the stars to relationship after relationship. They're unhappy with their body. They're unhappy with their jobs. They're unhappy with everything about their lives. And then they somehow look at Christians and go, well, at least I don't believe in some silly sky god. And they're hungry and thirsty. And they want rest. And they want peace. And yet the one thing that would give it to them is the one thing they refuse to eat and drink of. I always ask these people, I say, where has your worldview gotten you? Honestly, where has your worldview gotten you? Are you happy? Are you satisfied with your horoscopes? Is that your purpose and meaning in life? What is it? What has your unbelief gotten you? And it's a question that I already know the answer to. I already know it because I'm seeing their face. And it's written all over their face. It's written all over their social media. They are depressed. They're dejected. They're living hopeless lives. And you see, the story of Christ could shatter mountains. And it could break the earth in two with its splendor. And yet the unbelieving heart is more powerful than them, than the, than the mountains itself. Because only the unbelieving heart can be ripped apart and torn apart and ripped out by the Holy Spirit himself. It is a divine work of grace. And until the thick veil that remains between them and Christ himself is removed by the Holy Spirit, he will continue to be a stumbling block for them. That's a marvel. And we should marvel at that. And we should pray about that. What can be done? What can be done for them? What can be done for us? Unbelief is the sin that keeps the power of the gospel from taking root. Remember the parable of the sower? And unless the Holy Spirit moves, unless he shatters the hard hearts, our hard hearts, nothing will change. And so we have to be praying people. We have to ask God to give us faith. We must hold fast to the promises of Christ. And then we are to believe. Believe. Humility, holiness, it's got to start here. Then we've got to go out. We've got to go out in faith. We've got to preach the gospel. There has to be an urgency. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And this is why our message has to be right. We have to get the gospel right. The church is not a school for virtues because virtue without faith produces whitewashed tombs. It's not a social club. It's a hospital for sinners. We're not looking to make good little boys and good little girls who always say please and thank you because obedience apart from faith is disobedience with lipstick on it. There are no 10-step programs 
for you today. There's no diet plan that will make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. There's only Christ crucified. There is Christ crucified and the proclamation of victory over sin, Satan, all the powers of darkness. He's victorious. That's our message. And if you want to receive that salvation today, what, is, what does the woman do last week? What does she do? She reached out her trembling finger and touched Christ. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So we need gospel urgency. There are oh so many broken hearts. There are people who have suffered for years. There are people who are lonely. There are people who are stuck in cycles of addiction. If you turn on the news right now, you'll see mommies and daddies who are weeping over their babies in Texas. You'll see Ukrainians fleeing from their homes. They need hope. And they need comfort. They need faith in a holy and righteous God who will make everything sad come untrue. They need Christ and we have him. And it's our job to speak about it. Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And so here I am, belief. Believe now, you've heard it today. There is coming a time very soon when unbelief will be wiped off the map. Unbelief will be done away with and our faith will be made sight. Because God always punishes unbelief. He did it with the flood. He did it with the plagues in Egypt. And he's done it with his own people plenty of times in the past. In Matthew 10, 15, Jesus is talking about this very, this very thing of, of the towns that reject the apostles. He says this. He says, truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. You see, for those who remain in their unbelief, there is a doom to come. Let's turn to the final day, the final hour, if we might. You can imagine it. the clock tower chimes. There's a trumpet in the air. You hear it. The end has come. You know it. You look to the sea. It's boiling. The sea and the waves are set aflame like an ocean on the sun. You look to the sky. There's a rainbow cloud coming. And upon it sits one like the Son of Man upon his throne. And I know him. I know him well. He's my king. And I see his splendor. I see the mighty train of his robe. I rejoice that the day has finally come. Can you imagine it? He's full of light. He's full of beauty. He has a smile for the saints. He's there in the air. But looking down, I see no, like Noah, a miserable scene. People are crouching, it says. Revelation says they're crouching. They're hiding. They're in horror. They are saying, rocks hide us. Mountains topple upon us. Anything is better than the gaze of that man. But they can't hide. And they can't look away. And sure enough, every knee bows. Every knee is bent before him. The saints go marching in. We have our dazzling robes on. The unbelieving do not take part. They must watch from a distance in horror. And then down comes Christ like a mighty warrior in his chariot. And he drags behind him hell and Satan and death. It's glorious. It's the most beautiful scene you've ever seen in your entire life. And we clap. And we clap our hands and the mountains rejoice and the trees are clapping with us and a song goes up from the earth from all the saints. No more tears, no more injustice, no more death. The king has come. Where are the unbelievers? 
Where are you in this picture? The marriage banquet is spread. The wines of eternity are opened. The feast of the Lamb is here. Where are you in the picture? If you remain in unbelief, I know where you are. And you know where you'll be. And I pray it will not be so. Because the arms of Christ are open. (laughs) The arms of Christ are open. So cease your unbelief and come. Come today. I want to close with uh, some good news. Did you know there's only one other time in the Bible, some of you I bet knew this, where Jesus is said to marvel at anything. Luke 7, a Roman centurion comes. He's an outsider, and he has a servant who's very sick. And Jesus says, I will come and heal your servant. And the Roman centurion sends another one. He says, no, no, no. You don't have to come because you have authority, just like me. And if I tell someone to go, they go. And if you tell someone to be healed, they're healed. You don't have to come. I believe by word you can do it. Luke 7, 9, Jesus says, When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. Turning to the crowd, he said, I tell you, I've not found such great faith even in Israel. You see, there is such a thing as marvelous faith. It's a saving faith. There's a faith that's commemorated. It's celebrated by God. Hebrews has an entire chapter about the heroes of faith. And if you read it, you'll be surprised because they, these are scallywags. These are scoundrels listed in that hall of faith. And you say, me too. That's me too. I'm a scallywag. I'm a scoundrel. How did they get their names in the book? By faith. It's the same way you and I get our names in the book of the Lamb. The book of life. We're told Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. It's a faith that takes God as word. It calls him true. And let me tell you the most marvelous thing of all. If you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you say, I have just a little faith. It's so weak. Jesus says, you have that little bit of faith? You can move a mountain. That little bit of faith is enough to enter through the gate of Christ. There's a story from the life of missionaries. This is Robert and Mary Moffat. They were missionaries for 10 years. They labored over in Botswana. Not one single convert in 10 years. Not one. Finally, the directors of their mission board, they said, hey, uh, come back. We think it's time. You've, done, you've worked hard. You've come back. They thought of leaving their posts that brought them grief. They said, we love these people. We've devoted our lives to these people. We will see Christ's name honored here. So they stayed. Another year passed. Another year passed. And darkness continued to reign. And then one day a friend from England sent word to Mary Moffat. She said, I want to mail you a gift. What is it that you would like? Miss Moffat replied, send us a communion set. I am sure it will soon be needed. God honored her faith. And you see the Holy Spirit moved upon the villagers' hearts. Soon a little group of six converts were in that village. And the communion set that was delayed from England arrived the day of the first commemoration of the Lord's Supper in Botswana. That's marvelous, isn't it? It's marvelous faith. And we need faith like it because the world is dark and there's sadness and there's broken hearts. We need faith like this. We must get the message out. There must be an urgency because none of us are promised tomorrow. And that means we must ask hard questions of ourselves. We must examine our own hearts before God. What is it that causes you to doubt? 
Where does unbelief rear its ugly head in your life? Where do your anxieties live and camp out? And you must pray by God's grace, Lord, kill it. Kill it dead. So go to him. Go to him today. Father, I believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus, encourage us. Lift us up. Strengthen us. Holy Spirit, give us marvelous faith. I want faith that builds an ark when there's no rain. I want faith that asks for a communion set when there's not a convert to use it. I want faith in my weakness, faith in my sorrow, faith in my joyous moments. I want faith that sends me up the mountain and says, God will provide. You see, a church like that, a people with faith like that, that would be marvelous. Let's pray.